We all know it takes two to tango, and this month it takes two parts to make up the whole vintage podcast. Last week, we went stateside with James Lasden and John Burnside. This week, because we love you, we're going to hop over the channel to France before going to the footy. How do you feel about Valentine's Day, Alex? I wish you hadn't put it in quite such close proximity to the word footy, (laughs) because I am a football fan. Do you love football more than you love Valentine's? I... Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that, yeah. But unfortunately, I'm not being treated well by my football lovers, uh, Arsenal Football Club, who are, we are having a miserable, miserable time at the minute. So I must say, I'm not feeling in a terribly romantic uh, mood towards them. But I'm very, very jealous that you got to talk to Ross Rayson about, about football. Absolutely fascinating book. However, I don't have room for too much jealousy because I got to talk to Edouard Louis. Um, the End of Eddie is Louis' debut novel, and it's already been translated into 20 languages, caused a sensation in his native France with its frank depiction of poverty, racism and homophobia in the rural north where he grew up. I got the chance to speak to him on his recent visit to the UK. Edouard, thank you so much for joining us. Now, you've come straight off the plane from New York, haven't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> so you're on your kind of wild world tour telling us all about your book. It's very stimulating. But at the end, you know, I, I, I realize that everything is the same everywhere. You know, like when I talk about my books in Japan or US or here in the UK, like I face the same problems, you know, violence, domination, racism, masculine Do you mean domination. The, in the societies around you? Do you in the mean society in the people that you're talking around to? me, yeah, and the people when people talk about the the problems that they face uh, in, that they face in their own country, I realize that like basically the same thing is happening everywhere. So that we have to fight everywhere the same way. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this because one of the things that it struck me was that reading your book, and um, if I can say this to you, you're very young, so we know that all of these things that happened as you describe your childhood growing up uh, in a small a small town in France um, happened in the very recent past. Mm-hmm. And I think we have become habituated to the idea that in certain parts of the world and certainly in Europe, um, discrimination against homosexuals is largely a thing of the past and it comes as a great shock to realize this isn't the case in such detail yeah absolutely and that's that's exactly what why I, I wrote my book you know my book is is a son of the absence or daughter of the, of the absence if we, if we want it was just like when i started to read book when i started to discover like literature i just realized that the word of my childhood uh, the the world where I I lived in with my family with my father uh, didn't exist in literature. I couldn't find it. The closer I could find was books written two hundred years ago, like Zola or Charles Dickens. And e- every time I would hear people telling, "Oh, you know, Zola is so beautiful," but hopefully people are not starving anymore. And every time I would like hear this sentence, I I just felt like I don't know. I felt kind of hurt, you know, because it was as though 
the life I lived in my childhood was a fiction. For the people, mm. we were just fictions. We were just literature. We were just, we were not real, you know. And because, because yeah, we, we, we don't realize that, like, today such poverty exists, such misery exists. And we have to ask the question, when you say the word France, just France, who are you talking about? Who are you excluding from this category? Who are you like considering in this category? And who is outside? And the people of my childhood they were, were the people who were outside. So each time someone was saying France here in the UK, in the media, or in the US, they were talking about other people than my family and never about my family. And that were and about never about my milieu, my village. And that's why I, I started to write, to give a visibility to these people. Do you think, in that case, that um, the view from outside is that France is is sort of, roughly speaking, two things? It's it's Paris and it's um, all the things that we associate with Paris and it's the beauty of somewhere like Provence, for example, but the industrialised, suburban, semi-agricultural village regions are just not something that the outside sees. No, yeah, and exactly. It's some things that we don't see, that we don't consider. You know, when I sent... Uh, it's a story that I often tell because I think it's an important story. But when I when I sent my manuscript, the manuscript of the end of Eddie, uh, to some publisher, some of them refused the book because they told me, "Oh, nobody will believe this story. Nobody will buy this story," as we say in English, and uh, it doesn't exist. Like it's it seems like caricatural, and and for me it was so violent, you know, mm-hmm. because. Because when I arrived in Paris, for me, when I would see the very rich bourgeois woman in the thick arrondissement, the very center, dressed in Chanel, they were caricature for me, you know. So we are all the caricature of someone, you know. And, and, and yeah, so, and these people, the people of my childhood, my father, my mother, they suffer from this invisibility. When I was a kid, people would always talking about it. My mother would always say, nobody cares about us. Nobody talks about us. We, we don't worst anything. No. And, and, and so now they are, they, are, they are voting for populist parties. They are vo- I wanted to for... ask you about that because we're actually talking on the morning after Marine Le Pen launched her presidential campaign amid rallying support, um, which, of course, for, for many of us is extremely alarming. What, mm-hmm. is your, what do you feel when you see something like that happening in France? You know... During the Brexit campaign here in the United uh, in the uh, United Kingdom, uh, I was reading the papers. I was reading the the Guardian and so on, and they would interview people who were in favor of Brexit. And what struck me, it was that the people would say exactly the same sentence than my mother. You know, thousands of kilometers from my mother, yes, they yes. would say the same words. They would build a sentence exactly with the with the same syntax. It was incredible. It was incredible. Like no one cares about us. We are the we are the invisible ones and everything. So it's it's not only about France, it's a it's a world phenomenon. But yet I, I, I saw it growing again and again in my in my childhood but the, the real real responsible are not the people who vote for the front national the real responsible are the people that don't talk about the working class and let to the to to to, to the working class this feeling of of of, of invisibility of of being meaningless you know like 
why literature is always written by the bourgeoisie, addressed to the bourgeoisie, write, written with a bourgeois style and a bourgeois language, most of literature today. So to me, to write The End of the Edi was kind of the, uh, an insurrection against this state of literature, because literature has a big place to play like in 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 the recognition of people look how black people feel in the u.s to have someone like tony morrison they 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 feel that someone cares about her that someone is talking about them that someone is giving all her time and all her energy to them and for the for the dominated poor people like we, we we don't have our tony morrison we are it, it struck me as I was reading that there there was a line in the end of Eddie that you could draw between uh, existentialist writers in, in France and the kind of writing, because it is that very plain, affectless, straightforward writing. And I wonder if someone like Camus was in your mind as a, as a as somebody who was a possible sort of influence or at least occupied the space that you might be interested in. Yeah, like... Camus and and above all maybe Simone de Beauvoir, mm-hmm. uh, she she meant everything for me to me when I started to read. Like Simone de Beauvoir saved me when I when I read her books. And why? What was it? Because particularly like Simone de Beauvoir and Jean Paul Sartre, in what they were doing, their starting point it it was always to talk about the most invisible people, to always start with this, you know? So they talked about uh, poor people, they talked about black people when a very few people were talking about them. Sartre wrote an essay on Jean Genet and about homosexuality. It was so illegitimate at that time. Sartre was insulted, like, so much. Simone de Beauvoir, she wrote on uh, elder people, she wrote on women. She wrote... And so for, they wrote about all the people that are excluded and all the people who are dominated and it's 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 on in the in the core of of uh, the end of eddie you know it's this the the first thing of uh, the end of eddie is where i am in in the in middle school and two boys approaches and and they tell me oh faggot and they start to spit on me because i'm an effeminate very skinny uh, with a high voice kid and and it was very important for me to put this in at the very beginning because it was it was like a birth certificate for me you know the insult was my was the moment i was born it was with the insult the, when when these people told me faggot they were telling me what what, what my life how my life was going to be what it was what, going to be what, and who you were they were be. confining your identity i guess exactly and that that's that's the, the bigger thing that i took from jean paul sartre and simone de beauvoir it's all this category that shapes you, that, that, you know, falls on you and tells you, you a nigger, you a faggot, you just a woman. All, all these words that, yeah, are, are like the, the foundation of, of our life, this, this violence that constitutes us. And, and I read it, yeah, it struck me in, in, even if they didn't say it this way, uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre, but it was the heritage that I took from them. That, that, episode that you describe and and the subsequent episodes, one of the things that struck me so deeply and painfully about it was your determination in those moments to make sure that that happened away from view, Mm -hmm. to make sure that if people abused you, hit you, called you names, you somehow made sure that it happened in a place where others couldn't see. So instantly there is this idea of shame. But but tell me, why was that? Why Why did you want to run away? You know, the 
the tragedy of, of domination is that we are dominated and we are ashamed of being dominated. So we hide the domination. And when, when you know, when, for example, when, when, when Pierre Bourdieu published his book Masculine Domination or when Simone de Beauvoir published uh, Le Deuxième Sex, they had like so many women who were angry at them because they were describing how a woman's life is shaped in exclusion and in domination and everything. And it's so, it can be, it can be so unbearable, you know, because we are afraid of being seen as victim of something. We are afraid as, 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 as being perceived as, as weak, you know. We, we don't want it. So in the whole book, Eddie... Is, is running, is protecting the people who assault him every day, every day. And it was, it's the case of all the, of the, all the characters of, in, of my childhood, all the people. My mother, she, she was enduring a very hard life and, and she was still saying again and again, but I'm not suffering, I'm okay, I can't complain. And how can you change the world if people who suffer don't say that they suffer? It's, it's absolutely terrible, actually. Tell me why you decided to write this book as a sort of hybrid between a memoir and a novel, because you don't disguise in it either in the telling or, or, or talking about it the fact that this is, this is your life that you're writing, mm-hmm. and yet you're doing so in the context of, of fiction. Why is that? You know, like, I, ha- I have the impression that the world we live in is full of fictions and full of lies already, you know? Like, we see it with people like Julian Assange or Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden. They reveal that the governments are lying to us again and again. And the parents lie to the children. Like, lies and fiction are, are, are everywhere. So when I started to write, I, I, I felt that I had to tell the truth, you know, that that truth was missing, you know. It doesn't mean that I, I don't love fiction. I'm reading a lot of fiction. I love Toni Morrison more than anything else, uh, than anyone else, her book more than anything else. But when I was starting to write, truth was, was, was for me an emergency, you know. And so that's why, I, one, I had to make a, a book based on real fact. And two, I had to say it because I had to say to people, look at the world we live in. You know, when I published The End of Eddie, some people would tell me, oh, but it's not true. Uh, it can't be true. They were like attacking me in the newspapers. And some other newspapers like Le Monde or Les Arocs were supporting me and saying, but anyway, we don't care if it's true or not because it's literature. But I didn't like, I didn't like this at all, you know, because I didn't, I didn't want them to tell me, oh, if your mother has, is suffering or if your sister is being beaten, we don't care because it's literature. And at some point I was asking myself, can literature could be a way of not, talki- of not talking about the world we live in, you know? Sometimes literature can be just a way of denying the reality. So for me, to, I wanted to challenge this idea of literature. Oh, we don't care. It's style. It's made you know, up. It's... A literary style against the life of someone suffering is nothing. Literature can die in front of the suffering of someone. And so I, I had to, to build something based that, 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 that could challenge this. That's why every, everything is shaped a certain way. And that's why, to, to, to respond to you like more clearly, that's why I wanted to, to keep novel on the book because for me novels means construction 
And, and construction doesn't mean fiction. On, on the contrary, to reach the truth, you have, you have to, to build the book a certain way. And every paragraph, every sentence, every chapter for me is a way of, of, of reaching the truth. Mm. And believe me, it was, it was so hard. Yeah, like, for example, there's a very little chapter in the book. Uh, one is about the woman, one is about the cafe of the village, one is about the factory, one is about... It was uh, precisely a way of showing that you can't understand a reality if you if you don't look at the others, I mean, to be a man means to uh, not being a woman, to refuse uh, the, the feminine, what they could see as the feminine skills or other feminine manners. To be a man means to be as bad as possible at school and not like being like friendly with the teacher because it's an effeminate thing and everything. So all these realities are linked. And basically in the book, that was a construction, a literary construction that allowed me to get closer from the truth. That's so it's why a I, sort of kaleidoscope effect. You were always kind of following different parts of a truth that was kind of fragmenting. Yeah, in exactly, a, in a way. exactly. Tell me how hard, emotionally hard, it was to write this because you've managed to conjure this extraordinary sense of isolation and pain and suffering. It can't have been easy to write. I mean... Yeah, like on on the one hand, when I'm writing, I'm I'm just doing my job, you know. So I'm I'm a machine. Like my goal is to make the better sentence possible to say what I want to say, not just to make a beautiful sentence. As such, I'm not interested in it, but to make a sentence that will communicate what I want to what I want to communicate, what I want to say, what I want to to show. Uh, but still, of course, there were some 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 difficult part to to write but but for me it was the most interesting part you know sometimes i was thinking oh my god this is too private this is too intimate i can't say that i can't say that i was sodomized by my cousin at nine years old uh, in the backyard like how people will respond to it how they will preserve me but at the same time i thought that it was the interesting thing to say. The, all these things that are private, you know, because one of the revolution of, 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 of writers like Simone de Beauvoir or, or Marguerite Duras is that they, they removed the border between what is private and what is public, you know. And like when, 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 when Beauvoir wrote on women, like a lot of people would tell her, but you know, how women uh, behave at home and what do they do at home? It's not our business. It's not our thing. Like Camus attacked her very violently based on this. And, and precisely, she put into the public space things that were dismissed as private in order to never talk about, you know. And so in the book, when I was writing The End of Idea, I was thinking, okay, the most private it seems, the most I have to tell it because it was put by society by society in the shadow of privacy and the shadow of silence you know and and so yeah it was kind of hard but i i i had to do it like you know like some people say oh i i'm a, uh, uh, it's an uh, i what i love in the book is that it's so honest but for me it's not honesty for me it's just it it has to be brave, not honest. I don't care about honesty. I, I just care about honesty is so individual, you know. I'm not writing for myself. I'm good, I'm very happy. I have a beautiful boyfriend, I am I have a beautiful life, I know beautiful people. So I don't I don't write it to be honest or to feel better. I write it to Or to have a kind of 
getting at a catharsis or something like that. It's yeah. not it, that is not what it's about. N- not at all. Not a catharsis. Like it's politic, not cathartic. You know, I want I want to address some issue to the world we live in. I want to to talk about people we never talk about. I'm fi- I would feel so arrogant and selfish to to make books to 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 feel better. Like. I could, I could, I, I, it would be so strange for me. I am happy when someone comes in a bookshop or in a un- university and tells me, I recognize myself in your book. This makes me happy. But apart f- for me, no. I, uh, could yeah. I ask you a, a, a tricky question, you really? Can. <laughs> how, how did your family, those around you, your community, react to this? Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I, know, I, I know a lot of writers who just want to answer this kind of question but i think that it's it it can teach us a lot of things and so it was it was kind of of, of difficult because uh my mother she went crazy uh and she started to go on TV and everything to say, my son is a liar, everything is a lie. And she was attacking me very violently. And so a lot of media was manipulating her, like they took her in a house that was not her house. It was just another house. They didn't say it. They asked her to dress differently. They asked her to... So it was Just trying to create thing. an image of, of the yeah, situation. It was mm. so juicy for them, mm. like a scandal between a mother and, and her son. The books that destroyed the family. All, all of this was a fiction. It was funny, by the way, to see that I was trying to reach literature, uh, truth through literature, and that media was building fiction. <laughs> and it was, like, funny. But, but yeah, like, she was that crazy for, for several reasons. Uh, firstly, because I'm talking a lot of, uh, about, like, the violence that shaped this childhood. Not only, of course, there are beautiful moments and everything, but all these violence... Uh, my mother, she never, she never really, she really, never, like, sometimes, but often, she she wouldn't see this violence because this violence was like so reproduced, like every day, it's like she, she ended up call, calling it life and not violence, you know. Mm-hmm. And for if you ask her why did she stop school at sixteen, she she said, oh, because it was my choice. I, I was not into school. It was not my thing. And she doesn't understand that it, it's due to a violent mechanism because she's a woman born in a certain uh, uh, milieu and like uh, her parents didn't go to school, her grandparents didn't go to school, and that she was she was like thrown in this life. And and so when when in the book I say that we suffer from violence, my mother don't see it. She do, she, like, she thinks of it purely in, uh, as physical violence, or for example. She yeah. thinks not that kind of violence, so it didn't exist. Sometimes she would suddenly feel it, you know. Sometimes mm-hmm. she would just start to cry and say, my life is unbearable. And it was very difficult moments. But most of the time she was saying, well, you know, I can't complain. So as soon as I said it... and. And plus, I was making a piece of literature. So when you write literature, you have to, 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 to change the perception upon what you are describing. You know, if, if you just repeat the word as it is, if you just repeat what all the people say, then it's not interesting. So, of course, people don't recognize this themselves. So my mother yeah, yeah, went this way. But my father, on the contrary, was very, very different. And he called me when the book came out. And he told me, uh, Edward, I wanted to tell you that I'm so proud of you. 
And it was the first time of his life he called me Edward because it was so important for him that my name was Eddie, you yes. know. So you're a tough guy, hero, sort of. You, you say this in the book, the, the, the character's name in the book, Eddie Belgoy. Belgoy made like pretty mug, like yeah. smug mug. Like it was like a, a real film, tough a name. Film kind of ca- uh, character. Exactly. And in, in the lower working class in France, uh, people give American names to the kids. So to be heady, like to be the symbol of strength yeah. and everything. And so I was Eddie and my cousin was Brandon, Brian, Dylan, Jefferson, Candice. <laughs> and, and so my father was so proud of this name. And when I started to change my name, when I started to say, okay, I want to be called Edward, it was so violent. Uh, uh, from both sides, because I didn't realize at that time how violent it was for him. And I just wanted to flee so much that I wasn't taking care of him. Like, I was just, I was crazy because I wanted to escape. So I, I wasn't cautious, do we say it? Like I, I, yes. I, and, and, and for him, it was so tough and saying, no, your name is Eddie. I chose your name and you are what I decided. And so for, for years and years, we didn't talk. And when the book came out, he phoned me after five years of silence between it. And my book was published when I was 21. So uh, five years was quarter of my life without talking without him. And he called and said, Edward, daddy is so proud. And he bought like 20 copies of the books. And it was the first time of his life that he bought a book. I know it. He never had the chance to read. And he, he never had the chance to buy a book. And he, called, he, he bought... 20 copies to all his friends. He's a street sweeper. And to all his friends who, 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 who cleaned the street with him and he offered them and he made copies of the articles and he put it everywhere at his job. And 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 wow, that was, that was very beautiful for me. And it suddenly stopped saying like the things that he would say when I was a kid. He would say, we have to kill gays. We have to hang them on the trees. Gays are disgusting. And... And after my book, he said to me, oh, do you want to bring your boyfriends at home? And so I, I believe that based on the same life, people can be so different. They can take so many like different lives, so many different options, so many different discourses. Like you, you, can, you can see that the people who vote from Marine Le Pen today in France, 40 years ago in France, People who had the same like conditions of life would vote for the communist party. You know, it was the biggest party in France. It was the most important. So, based on the same experience, based on the same suffering, people can take so many different directions. And that gave me faith in literature. That's like helping, like helping to create other ways for people to perceive themselves and to perceive the world. Edward, thank you so much for coming thank to you. talk to about. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I'm so, I hope I'm that so you talkative, will, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope that you will come back and talk to us again. It was, it was such a, a pleasure okay. to meet you. Thank thanks, you so much. Thanks to you. Thanks to you. I loved that book. Absolutely loved it. It's quite tough to read, actually, but it is amazingly written and it seemed to me very important. To, yeah, to very hear much those, so. Yeah. I will, I'll just confide this too I mean I so enjoyed speaking to him but having read the book when he first arrived and we were introduced mm. I thought I would meet something someone incredibly serious and yes. rather sort of downbeat and this fantastically exuberant funny energetic person kind of bounced into the room and just could not stop talking it was wonderful he's amazing completely charming so yeah if you ever meet him or if you get the chance to see him at an event I would really recommend it because he's just a fantastic speaker and a great great personality anyway we must move on we're going to move on to footy we, we, we sort of you know we mentioned earlier 
how poor Alex is suffering due to Arsenal. But suffering. Actually, really suffering. But if you asked us to count up the number of novels about football, you would probably not have need of both of your hands because they seem to be rarer than an England penalty shootout victory. Going to, I'm going to pop up here yeah? and mention a wonderful novel by J.L. Carr, How Steeple Cinderby Wanderers Won the FA Cup. OK. Um, and I, I was introduced to this book many, many, many years ago uh, by the critic and, in fact, vintage author D.J. Taylor, mm. um, who himself wrote a novel really quite a long time ago too now um, called English Settlement, which was about a fictional football club. And, of course, football club appears in um, John Manchester's recent novel, mm-hmm. Capital. However, this is, not to, this is not to undermine your argument. You are right. There are not many. There are not many. But oh, In fact, you'll see from the chat that I had with Ross Raisin about his book, there's a question about whether we should even be talking about them being football novels. Because, of course, you don't kind of go, oh, yes, I've read this great law novel, you know, if it happens to have a lawyer <laughs> in it. It's a weird thing with football. But anyway, after having written novels about a farmer and a former shipbuilder, I wanted to know what had attracted one of Granter's best of young British novelists to write a novel that is set in the fourth tier of English football. And it proper deals, football. Proper football, exactly. Dealing with masculinity and sexuality. I was really, really thrilled to have a chance to speak to him about all of that. And here it is. Ross, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us uh, about your novel, A Natural. Um, I'm going to call it a football novel because I guess it deals with football. But I wanted to ask why you decided to write a novel that was set in the world of of football? Where did that idea come from? I think I would say that I don't see it as a football novel, but I find this categorisation thing quite interesting and over the past few years have found it quite frustrating at various periods because football as a subject and books, certainly in terms of what is labelled literary fiction to mention another category they don't really go together hence why we don't see a great number of football fiction books other than David Peace but even the David Peace books they're very heavily categorized as football novels whereas to me a novel is uh, an exploration of 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 character it's 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 um it's an exercise in empathy on the part of the writer and on the part of the reader and the fact that it's set within the world of football, to me, is kind of neither here nor there, mm. in a sense. But maybe that's just me being <laughs> being a bit obstinate. I, d- I don't know. <laughs> no, I think um, you're right. I think the reason, I suppose, the reason why I think of it as a football, as you say, is because there are so few of them. Of course, the book itself is about men and women. It's about these characters that you've created. They just happen to be in the world of football. Yeah, don't they? and of course, it, I mean, it is a football novel. I'm just, <laughs> I am just being obstinate. It is a football novel in that it is set in the world of football and and I think that probably at some sort of conscious or unconscious level is something I've maybe always been interested in doing. Certainly I've sat on this idea for quite a long time. Mm. Inevitably a lot of that interest comes from the fact that I like football. I'm a football fan. Um, I love football. Some of my deepest, most significant memories are absolutely wrapped around football experiences mm. that I've had and ones that I've had with a community, specifically my my father. Um, you know, and that's got to that's got to go somewhere, I suppose. That's got to that's got to be in there somewhere in my uh, wanting to write a book about football. But I. I think I'm not somebody that that has ideas popping around my head 
all the time. I think I've had three ideas in 15 years and <laughs> and written a novel about... And that's that's been enough. That's three that's novels. That's 100% hit rate. Though, yeah, it's pretty good. But I think, I think the... Um, it's useful. It'd be nice to have lots of ideas. I'd quite like to be that person, but I'm not, I think. But it does mean that I have sat with those three ideas for a long time, be- even before writing those novels. Um, and I remember having the idea for this one seven years ago. It was, yeah, it was seven years ago and I was on holiday and, and I remember I remember telling my wife, I think I want to write a novel about a gay footballer and her saying... That's ridiculous. What a novel about football. <laughs> this is the thing. So instantly, yeah. she heard the idea and and football novel, what are you playing at? Yeah. Um, but d- despite that, um, the, the idea did r- remain interesting to me. And I wrote a short story, which, which in fact became, with changes, most of the first chapter of the novel. Right. Yeah, and I, I was I was very interested in the idea, not not quite as simple as oh, what happens if you're gay and you're a footballer, which, in terms of the superficial interest of the book, and the subject and the subject within art and culture at the moment, because it is starting to creep in. Um, I, I think I was more interested. Well, I was and remained more interested in the idea of identity and the idea of what happens to a person who's grown up within a completely insular world with a very hard and fast set of principles and beliefs and opinions and ideas of self and who you are if you are a footballer. If you're growing up within a football club as a youth team player, you have a very prescribed idea of who you are and who you should be. And that's reinforced constantly mm. by layers and layers around you of the the boys around you, of the um, the staff around you, the first team structure around you, the club hierarchy around you, and then beyond that, the structures of football and the public discourse of football and the media, and all of it is telling you who you should who you are and who you should be and so if you come to a point when you start to think i don't think i'm this person then what happens to you at that point how do you how do you make choices about your life when you have received a very thin education both academic and social education about how to be a different kind of person yeah and so the, the, there are two facets to that within the book one of which is what happens if you don't get the contract that you've always believed you would get and you're thrown into a different world? So for, so for this player, it's lower league football and in that sense he's more lucky than the majority. For a lot of those young players, it's it's a different kind of life outside yeah. of football that they're completely unprepared for. And the other facet of it is sexuality. And so what happens if you start to feel not necessarily I'm gay because it's not as simplistic as that, but... I don't feel normal, mm. I think is what it boils down to. And I think that a lot of the that public discourse that I talk about around this subject of homosexuality in football is often rather simplistic and sort of presumes that there are secretly gay footballers hiding mm. inside the world of football mm. and that they know that they're gay but they just but they're afraid to come out. And of course there are 
those people, but I imagine there are a lot more people who are just deeply confused and potentially self-loathing because they're just the, the idea of gay and what that means is not as simple for them and as clear for them as it might be for people outside of that bubble. And so the novel explores all of that, and I, I, I do find it interesting. Um, with the, as I say, with these trajectories of the, the characters in the book, you mentioned there about your father, and there's a lot here about family because footballers uh, obviously have their, their their own family, but there is this family of the football club mm. around them. That's very well explained. Did you have to do a lot of research around football clubs to sort of see how that works, how players are looked after? The idea of living, you know, with sort of almost with foster families. Yeah, I did put. You see, I think if you if you follow a football club, then you you do have you do probably have quite a large knowledge of of, of complete of what what is usually completely pointless and useless fact. <laughs> and um, but actually, all those you know those thirty seven years of um, building up just that pointless crap is actually turned out quite useful in the end. <laughs> um, but but it only cuts so deep. You only. You only are party to the stuff that you, you as the public, are allowed, mm. allowed to have. And so the, there is a certain level beneath that that I wanted to try and cut into to, to try and find out a bit more of what goes on underneath that surface. And that's not easy. Uh, you know, as, you, as I'm sure most people can imagine it, football, uh, well, and at the moment is quite pertinent in terms of the um the child abuse scandal yeah um just the um the firewall around football and around football clubs getting at a truth underneath it is not easy mm. because they are so protective of themselves um so it was difficult but to a certain extent you yes, say I, I did manage to to do that by talking to Various footballers in lower, not not high, because the book is set in League Two, mm. Division Four. That's mainly the level at which I conducted most of my research. But I spoke to footballers. I spoke to football managers, boardroom members, sports scientists, youth team coaches. Um, I spent two wonderful days with a groundsman, just following him around and listening to him chat yeah. about his job, which was which was fantastic. <laughs> Um, and I'm so grateful to him. Yeah, and that was, even for somebody who, you, you know, I have built up over the years an awareness of, you know, sort of what goes on in football, but some of the anecdotes that I was told did manage to shock somebody, who, even like me, who follows football, because yeah. just the levels of aggressive masculinity yeah. and performance of, of that masculinity and the ways in which that manifested itself with some of these anecdotes, yeah, Pretty shocking, and and some of them are you know I've used in in the book, the Christmas party for example is mm. a Christmas party scene, in which um, two of the young boys, two of the characters in the book, are shamed on a stage in a sexual way, um, humiliated, and that's something that you, I came across again and again. I think in my research that the idea of humiliation mm. um, as a power structure. Yeah, there's another dynamic, um, w- you know, following the main character, there's also another character who is a sort of a, a one-star player within the, that team who is sort of suffering a physical decline. He's reaching, you know, towards the end of his career. We also see his his relationship with his, his wife sort of deteriorating. Um, 
And there's great physicality in the book. You know, we see obviously the, the playing of football, but the idea of injury and aggressive tackling and, and these men whose bodies are their tools sort of really suffering. Um, again, did that come from your research, from talking to people, or something that you had any experience of your, yourself? I mean, you mentioned as a, a man of, what now, 37? You know, as somebody who's the same, a similar age, you know, that sort of awareness of your body sort of <laughs> not working quite as well as it used to. There is something about that, isn't there, about sort of male physicality, the, the, the awareness of, of it? Yes, and I, I, I think I think uh, I'd not really thought about that, but um, now you mention it, that's definitely the fact that my own body is starting to fall apart. Um, that must come into it. I think I do find it really interesting in talking to any footballer, just the fragility, not just of mental fragility in terms of you know what happens if 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 you if you step outside of this world of normal or you're perceived as being outside of being normal, mm. um, but the fragility of the body, um, and of course. You are completely dependent on the constancy of your of your physical self mm. of your of your of your body, and what happens to you if y- your body becomes broken in some way if you're injured and especially if you get a significant injury that has a big psychological effect of course on a footballer and and yeah, I wanted to have one of the major characters in the book have that happen to him mm. uh, and and show previous to that this isn't a particularly stable guy as it is and when he becomes injured um he spirals and and he becomes depressed and the knock-on effect on his family on his wife is severe and that's another thing that i wanted very much to explore as well that's the the idea of being the wife of a footballer again and again i always you know with this book and with my previous novels I always seem to return to um, the idea of a stereotypical character or certainly a character that has some form of presumption, some sort of social presumption around them Mm. um, and to create a character in which who they really are, what they really think in a complex way is is explored within the novel. And I enjoyed doing that with um, Leah, the wife of this character. Yeah. Um, She's probably the first significant female character that I've written in my novels it's about time <laughs> um, but um, yeah I, I, I enjoyed her because she is she is quite complicated and, and she becomes quite um, significant in the structures of the plot yes with the other, with the other sort of structures I mean you see through her how, how much she has to serve and support her husband uh, you know as, as the breadwinner I guess and then I guess through the novel she has an opportunity to start thinking about herself and, and making decisions for for herself rather than for him. Yeah, the novel is is with every character very focused on the idea of autonomy and whether or not if you exist as one of the various pawns in that world of football, uh, whether you have any mm. or, or not. And generally speaking, footballers at any level, even in Premier League, they don't have a great deal of autonomy and agency. They are, they're, they're very much at the whim of forces that they can't control. And that's quite interesting. And, it, and the lower down you go, the more interesting that becomes, I think, because mm. you're aware as a Division 4 footballer, I still call it Division 4 <laughs> because I don't, I don't like all the branding that goes on, but um, you're aware that your career 
is transitory. Mm. And you earn a lot of money. Well, it depends. I mean, so the captain of this team, he earns a lot of money. He, he earns maybe three grand a week. I can't remember, actually. Mm. Um, a lot of the players won't earn that much. But there's the potential for earning quite a lot of money in normal person terms. Yeah. But it's still, you know, it's transitory. And you're aware of that. And so if you are discarded by your club, if you're put on the market, then, you you know, you want to go somewhere and get another job. And so you the experience of your life and therefore the experience of whomever you live with, so your partner, your children, is you move from mm. place to place without very much preparation whatsoever. And so for her, that's that's just a rubbish existence. Yeah. She's completely beholden to him. Um and and has experienced moving across the country to places that she probably never even heard of um, with a baby and all the time travelling further and further away from the person that she at one point had hoped and dreamed of being and and I do think that that's interesting and I do, and I do think that footballers' wives, wags as they're called football does attempt to to put them in their box mm. because it's useful for football to do that. It's useful for masculinity and the, the, the masculinity that is fostered in the side of football club because they want that masculinity. They want it to be, you know, they want it to be big and they want to use it. And so as part of that, keeping a woman inside that very prescribed role mm. reinforces that masculinity. I wanted to explore some of that. You, there's some of the um, stresses and strains that are on those players to, to maintain that masculinity. They're very, very clear. And we see in the book how they often turn to things like drink or, or drugs or gambling or whatever it might be as a sort of a, a vice that seems to go along with that. And one that I hadn't actually considered but which you cover in this book is is the sort of internet forum. And that's something I'd never considered, this sort of idea of almost the fame that goes along with football and the worry that these players have about how they're perceived by the fans. I mean, are you a, a, a forum person yourself or had you sort of gone into that world to sort of see how, how people talk about the game from that side? I, I used I used to um, go on the forums. I don't know why I did it because... It, because Well, I do know why I did it because it's completely addictive. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, and even this this week, you know, it was transfer deadline day a couple of days ago, and so naturally, I went on the Bradford City forums because there was I knew there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on, and I wanted to know, and I wanted to know that stuff of um, oh, has has Charlie White been seen in the car park outside the ground, and seeing people's photographs, you know, through rain blurred window screens of is that him? Yeah, that looks like him. That means he's coming. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's that's that's. That is the salacious interest in football that it's very hard to... Um, I find it very difficult to escape from. But you go on those forums and, well, I feel like the forums that are um, shown in the book are quite a good representation of, of what they're like. Mm. And they are, you know, it's just the pits of the internet. It's everything that's bad about social media. Yeah. Do forums count as social media? I think they probably do. I think like, it's like going below the line, uh, an article on a newspaper, but also you know, any forum that I've ever been in, it's not long before you kind of go, this is just horrific. Any discussion just suddenly goes into very, very dark and horrible yeah. territory. Um, yeah. One thing that is interesting with the forums to me is um, the idea of anonymity. 
And there's a real parallel, I feel, with that kind of anonymity that you have on a forum. Oh, I can say what I want and Mm. no one's going to know it's me. Let's say something really horrible about somebody that really degrades them and what goes on in the stands. And if you shout out a piece of abuse at somebody, you're not completely invisible, but you're... The player's not go- not usually going to see you. Mm. There's no comeback for you if you do that, and it's a, which is a big problem in football. Football clubs are in no way good enough at policing themselves, that kind of thing, unless there's the threat of... It, it gets shown somewhere, you know, and, and there's, there's the threat of a fine, some paltry fine from the FA because yeah. there's been some racist abuse that's gone on or or what have you. Um but there's a there's a real comparison I think to be made between those two things, and I think that for a lot of football fans, that is their moment to get out and express their frustrated masculinity. Yeah. I think those 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 feelings of oh, I want to I want to get somebody, I want to that guy who I've always hated, I want to get him, and yeah. I can do it without anybody knowing it's me. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Gives you that cover. Yeah. We've we've spoken about how there are various types of love that are sort of dealt with in a natural. So you know, there's that sort of the love from the club, players' love of football, the sort of uh, family love, and indeed the relationships and the the sort of the, the, the discovery of sexuality as well. We're recording this in February, so I'm bound to talk about love in some way. But I just wondered whether there were any books that you feel talk about love properly, because r- rather than the sort of boxes of chocolates and flowers, romantic idea of love that we hear a lot, of, a lot of at Valentine's. Are there any classic novels or indeed modern novels where you kind of thought, yes, that is what, that's what love's really like, you know? Hmm, that's a good question. It took me a, a, a moment there to figure out what you're talking about February. I think, February? What, what, what does he mean? <laughs> you mean Valentine's Day? Yeah. Okay. The last novel that I read that I felt moved me in some way because of a depiction of love was James Kelman's newest novel Dirt Road mm. I would say and the relationship between father and son mm. which is very typical in for me in terms of James Kelman's writing that I've read before in that it's just so raw and true um and that relationship between those two the man and the and the young lad um is is very inarticulate mm. there's not a lot of words going on between them but the the power of of the hold between them, of the love between them, I, I found I found incredibly moving. Actually, I found mm. that a very moving book. Yeah, so that would be my be my example. Thing. Well, Ross, it's great to speak to you about a natural. Um, thank you for for writing it, and uh, thanks for giving me a bit of time to talk about it today. You're very welcome. Well, it's been a busy month, hasn't it, Will? It certainly has. That concludes our two-part February podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it, and please do leave a comment or a rating on your podcast platform of choice so we know what you're thinking we'll be back next month with more bookish goodness but until then it's bye from us both bye bye